to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. My name is Julie Arafay, Simulation Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. The topic for discussion today is a case study. See if you can determine the diagnosis. Dr. Suzanne McMurtry-Baird will be presenting the case for review. Hey, Julie. Hi. It's great to see you. Yes. So today we're going to talk about a case study, and like as Julie said, so I want to give you some patient information to start with, and then we'll start going through the essentials of the case. So this is a 30-year-old patient who is a gravid of five, para 3013. So she has had three vaginal births at term. She did have an ectopic pregnancy that required the removal of one of her fallopian tubes. So that has occurred in the past. Um, For her prenatal care, she really had an uneventful prenatal period. No risk factors are noted throughout the, um, the pregnancy. No medical history. The surgical history is only the removal of the fallopian tube that we discussed and uh, no significant psychosocial history. She is English-speaking, she is on Medicaid, and she's single patient, which I think when you look at the social determinants of health, we need to look at all of that and see if that may affect some of the care or some of the, um, the issues in the case, you know, for each case, but to consider those in our in our um, case studies. Anyway, this patient progresses through pregnancy. At around 33 weeks, she comes into triage, rule out preterm labor, but she was closed, thick, high. She had a small amount of vaginal bleeding and some pelvic pressure, but no contractions. She's discharged home and continues till term. And she comes in at 40 and one seventh weeks, and she comes in for an induction of labor. So they start her IV, the physician comes to the bedside, you know, for the morning rounds, and she's only 150% effaced and high station, but they decide to go ahead and rupture her membranes, and they put in a fetal scalp electrode and an IUPC. Kind of seems like what we used to take care of in the normal um, induction of labor realm, maybe not so much. Uh, that we're seeing today, but this is a, a, a real case and not that long ago. So uh, I guess they were old school or something. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, her bishop score that so is only five. So we're going to have, you know, a ways to go. But she is she has had, you know, three vaginal births um, and that hopefully that she'll progress in labor quickly. But let me give you her initial vital signs. They're 118 over 78 for her blood pressure. Her heart rate is 65. Her respiratory rate is 18. And her temp is 96.8. And I think it's important to remember that these are going to be our baseline vital signs. And looking back through her prenatal care, that's pretty much what she ran. You know, heart rate is 65. Seems like it may be a little bit higher sometimes in pregnancy, but never over 100. And, you know, normal blood pressure, normal respiratory rate, and certainly a temp that is um, considered normal by many. So it's 96.8. So this patient starts, they start her induction. And at this particular hospital, they they kind of had a di- different induction protocol. They would start at two and and then go up by six, and at times they would go up by four. So, you know, there's a wide range of dosing for Pitocin um, in the ACOG and A1 documents, and we know that different hospitals run it different ways. So not an issue really with this case, but they did, you know, have a different regime of titrating their Pitocin. And The patient progresses. She gets to be three. She decides she wants to do an epidural. So they call anesthesiology. They come to the bedside. 
Her initial labs when she came in that morning, I want to give you those. Her white blood cell count was 10, normal. Her hematocrit is 34.8, so that would be considered normal. Hemoglobin, 11.9, and her platelets were 225. So again, I think that that is an important piece of information to keep in the back of your mind, that she had normal CBC on admission, and that will come into play later on. So again, she gets her epidural, and one of the first abnormal components of her assessment follows her epidural. And her heart rate gets to be 100 in the 120s. And it consistently stays in the 120s. So as a bedside nurse, the first thing I'd want to do is to start investigating, you know, what could be causing my heart rate to go into the 120 range? So the nurses take the patient's temperature, 97. Heart rate stays in the 120s. They take the temp again. 97.9. But the next abnormal assessment component that comes into play is her pulse oximeter that they had put on when they placed the epidural is registering 95 and 94 and 93. Still, she's continuing maternal tachycardia and they're continuing to increase her Pitocin now by two millionits per minute on each increase, and she's got this pulse oximeter that's running in the 94% range. Yeah, you know, Suzanne, those two criteria are going to trigger a maternal early warning. So I wonder how many times nurses are faced with this decision. Okay, we've got a tachycardia, my SATs are a little bit low, and I'm sure there's some investigation that you want to do ahead of when you call the physician about this. So I think going through some of those assessments that you would make is going to be helpful. So the first thing I would think is, you know, I've got a patient with this tachycardia and also pulse oximeter that's low. I want to do my other components of the assessment. I want to first know what her respiratory rate is. Unfortunately, in this case, there weren't any more respiratory rates that were recorded. We had a respiratory rate on admission of 18, but there were no other respiratory rates recorded. So I would want to know the respiratory rate. I want to know if her blood pressure is normal. And in this patient, the blood pressure remains normal. Even after her epidural, she wasn't hypotensive. Um, I want to know if the heart rate is progressively increasing. So the highest at this point has been 122. But we've got all tachycardia in the mom. And I want to know, again, continue down that pathway. I want to listen to her breath sounds. And when I listen to her breath sounds, I want to make sure that I do it in the proper manner. So... Oftentimes, I see um, nurses and physicians listening anterior uh, upper lung fields only. And in a patient, in, in a proper assessment, and especially a patient like this, I'd want to listen posteriorly throughout all lung fields to make sure that there are not any subtle signs and subtle, you know, crackles that could be auscultated. And then the other things I want to do is think, has she been, uh, what has been her urine output? Mm. What has been the color of the urine? What about her pulse quality? Is it weak? Is it one plus, two plus, three plus, or four plus, which we would expect in a patient like a term laboring patient with an epidural that's been volume loaded? We would expect her pulse quality to be bounding Um, at least three plus, four plus. But if we had a weaker pulse, that would kind of make me concerned. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I would want to know is what is our process for early warning criteria? Definitely. You know, that is recommended by ACOG and A1 and the Joint Commission. 
And we're wanting to have these early warning criteria in place, not just to recognize, but what is your process after that? What is the follow-up? Who comes to the bedside to assess this patient who has consistent early warning criteria? And in this case, two. Two early warning criteria that are concerning. One, her tachycardia. Two, her low pulse ox values. And with the pulse ox values, I'm now concerned about how is that affecting fetal oxygenation? Because mm-hmm. the lower her pulse ox gets, right now it's below 95%, which any anybody is going to be concerned about and how that might affect the fetal status. So what does the fetus look like? I think giving the physician all of this information I, and really thinking about, oh, you know, it's not that important, the respiratory rate or the heart rate. But those are huge criteria. We know from studies done in critical care that those are the first two criteria that begin to change when a patient is decompensating. So they're not just everyday run-of-the-mill criteria. They're important. And the way I think of it, because my mind always goes back to simulation and always goes back to preparation, is, okay, we've got this. We've got these abnormal findings. It may not, we're not going to run back and do a C-section at this point. We may not do much of anything at this point, but it's a great time for the team to have a discussion. What other signs are we going to be looking for? What other kinds of deviations or elevations are we going to be concerned about? How long are we going to let this go on before we begin to look at maybe diagnostic tests? So I think that discussion is hugely important. And it seems like what I hear most often is, well, call me if things get worse. That's just way too vague in a patient like this, I think. Right. And we also got to think and critically think, I'm inducing this patient, right? And as I turn up her Pitocin and I go up higher and higher and I make her contraction stronger and stronger, it utilizes more oxygen. Her cardiac output needs are increased. So could her uh, heart rate be a compensatory sign of something else that's going on Again, I can't diagnose that. And based upon what I'm seeing and reviewing in this case, it seems like the nurses, they recognized that the pulse ox was low. They recognized that the heart rate was high, but it it was like there was no process to go further than that. Mm-hmm. They started listening to breath sounds quite frequently from here on out. Um, but again, the pulse ox then went down to like 93%, 92%. They start oxygen at five liters nasal cannula, which is quite high with nas- nasal cannula. Yeah. They, they gave her a fluid bolus. I'm not quite sure what that was for. Her pulse ox, after they start the oxygen, comes up to about 96%. And the physician comes by. So, you know, that was good because we've got a physician at the bedside now who can do another assessment. So it's always better to have, you know, not only somebody else's eyes and ears to see a patient after you detect something abnormal, get another opinion, right? That Mm -hmm. may be another nurse. But in this situation, a physician or the midwife needs to come to the bedside to do their assessment to determine the differential diagnosis. So the physician's there. She's changed her cervix. She's only two centimeters. Breath sounds are clear. She's not laboring really effectively at this point. And so they decide to turn up the Pitocin. So she's on 18 milliunits at this point. Her Montevideo units are not very high. So you can tell that's their focus because they continue to go up until they get to 20 milliunits of Pitocin. 
And her SATs now on oxygen are down to 93%. Mm. And then 91% and 90%. And now I'm getting really concerned. Yeah. And you know, I just want to point out, when somebody says an increasing oxygen requirement, this is what they mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is exactly what they mean. You 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 should not see someone on oxygen and their SATs continue to go down. Right. I mean, you've got to really start to become concerned. So let's just think if her oxygen saturation was around 90%, her PaO2 is going to be somewhere around between 60 and 70. So yeah. that's how it correlates. And and so we've got a patient who is struggling here and she's on oxygen. Mm. And her pitocin's continued. And in fact, it's even turned up. That's right after that 90% that's been trending down. Her pitocin's turned up to 20. So I'm I'm thinking as, as this progresses that not only do we have a patient who's decompensating, but she's laboring harder too because her monovidale units become, you know, greater than 200 and she starts to change her cervix. So she's going to start getting into that more active phase of labor with these contractions are stronger. I know that that is going to increase her oxygen utilization and that could lead to more maternal decompensation, right? Mm -hmm. And then we start seeing it, you know, her heart rate is in the 130s now. And now she starts running a temp. So her uh, first her first high temp is 100.9, but it's been hours since she's been tachycardic and she's been, you know, hypoxic. And now we've got this temp going up. And the first thing I think of critically is more oxygen utilization as her temp goes up. Is that correct? Isn't that correct? Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. She She's requiring a lot of oxygen right now just to maintain labor, to maintain herself, to oxygenate the fetus. Yeah. So I know we hate to continue, but let's continue. Her breath sounds <laughs> still are clear. And, uh, you know, you can tell they're concerned because, the, again, they're, they're listening and they're starting uh, to, they're documenting it frequently. They start the pitos, uh, they start the, uh, amp and gent on this patient and they turn her oxygen off for a bit because the physician is going to come in. But at this point, the patient's been there for 24 hours labor. They turn her oxygen off or her pit? Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Her pitocin offs. Okay. Thanks for correcting me on that. But they turn her Pitocin off, decide to rest her uh, in the morning, waiting for the physician to come back in. Uh, but she's been there for 24 hours. Mm. And we've had abnormal vital signs and pulse oximetry values now for, you know, going on about 15 hours, though. And it's continued and continued and continued. So uh, the physician said, hey, I'm going to be coming in in a bit. So go ahead and turn her off of her Pitocin and we'll get started when I come back in. So they do. And she's again on Amp and Gent. And the physician comes in. She's only four centimeters after 24 hours of induction. Mm. And she's been off of her Pitocin now, I guess, for about an hour and 15 minutes and they decide to turn her back on and they restart her at 10 milliunits. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, that seems kind of high to me. <laughs> yeah, right. So, well, we know that, you know, Pitocin clears pretty quickly. The half-life is very short. So if you're going to have Pitocin off for an hour and 15 minutes, you know, it's recommended that you would just restart it at the initial rate, you know, one two, you know, two would be fine. In this hospital, I know they ran it a little bit differently, but starting it at 10 would be a little bit high. Mm. Yeah, it seems high. So her temp's 100.9. She does have some fetal tachycardia. The maternal tachycardia, it continues. 
because she has the um, maternal tachycardia and fetal tachycardia, you know, they're taking her temp pretty regularly. And the fetal heart rate is now tachycardic with minimal variability. So I guess we would think, what would our assessment focus on at that point? You know, you've got a temp, Mm -hmm. you've got fetal tachycardia, you've got maternal tachycardia, you have low pulse ox values, and we've got to think, what are we, what's our plan of care? And I think that it's important to remember that we all huddle then to determine what that is at this point for that patient. Because I don't think that anybody is anticipating, you know, at this point, when I look back on this case, that there was anything going to be different. But also, I don't think that anybody anticipated that anything was going to change, you know, was it going to get worse or or not? Yeah. And unfortunately, it got worse. So we've got a patient now that they're going up on the Pitocin again. She's now on 14 milliunits, barely minimal variability. You know, it's one of those strips where you're going, oh, I don't know. Could that be (laughs) absent variability? Could it be minimal? And her pulse ox is 91%. Then it goes down to 86%. Yep, that was not a, 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 a um, error. 86%. And her temp is 101.1. Uh, I mean, nothing is trending in the right direction. Nothing. Right. right. And they want to get her temp down, so they order some Tylenol. But, and they give that, but her temp's 101.1 and satting 86%, and she's got a heart rate over 100. Oh, gosh. So, what, what do you do at this point as the bedside nurse? What's, I mean, I, I can just sit here thinking, okay, the physician's been in, I'm listening to the breast sounds. Um, I, I know what I would do, um, when, when I was practicing, I would have called the anesthesiologist and said, can you come in here and look at this patient too? Just, just because I, I always, the anesthesiologists that I've worked with have always been so helpful and they're, they were always OB anesthesiologists and they, they would, they would hone in and just help every single time we had a confusing patient, but I don't know what, what other actions does the nurse take at this point? Well, again, I think that falls to the fact that we have to have a structure in place that defines this process and each hospital's process is going to look different, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you had a patient out on the med surge floor, let's say, and they had these vital signs, there would be an RRT called because that would be such a concern that you had a patient out there with a pulse ox of 86% on oxygen. Mm-hmm. That patient is decompensating quickly and you have to have a diagnosis. So it's not something that you can ignore. And I, everybody's hospital has these RRT uh, components, but oftentimes we don't think they apply to OB, right? So as the nurse, I want a team to the bedside right now. Mm-hmm. And if that's your hospital RRT or if that's your OB RRT, or, and it may be as simple as having the physician come to the bedside again, I know they Mm -hmm. just left, but to come to the bedside because we've got to figure out a diagnosis and there may need some, be some more testing because right after this, after they give her her Tylenol and they recheck the temp, because you know, you know how when you take a patient's temp and you take it and you're like, I think she's even hotter than that, right? Yeah. And she's, she is, she's 101.8 now. Her heart rate is in the 140s and now we've got this fetus fetal heart rate pattern that 
really is smooth and undulating. It almost is uh, has an appearance of a sinusoidal, but it wasn't wasn't sinusoidal it's just very smooth and undulating Mm -hmm. and you can tell the nurses are very concerned they start taking temps uh, like they're trying axillary temp they're trying tympanic they're trying oral um Mm -hmm. and their her range of temp is between 103 it goes all the way up to 106.2 depending on how they take it oh my gosh and she's got heart rates in the 130s, 140s. She's satting 93% on oxygen now. And then she starts to vomit. Oh, God. <laughs> so I th- the, the nurses, you know, call the doc and say, okay, you need to get in. And the doc does come in. But now you've got this patient that, you know, is so unstable uh, she's throwing up, and and one of the nurses' notes I thought was interesting. It said gums inflamed, and bleeding. Mm. What's that mm. tell you? Well, I I would be concerned about her coags at that point. <laughs> Absolutely. So they decide to draw as another CBC at that point. They don't draw coags, and so her white count now is at two point five. Her hematocrit has gone up, so it's 37.4. Her hemoglobin's gone up, 12.2, and her platelets now have gone down to 121. Hmm. So we've got this patient who has a, you know, white cell count of 2.5. That has gone down in 24 hours from 10-something to 2.5. So she's on that curve of where her white cells would have jumped up. She's utilized so many now that the number is low. So you would definitely want a differential with that lab. Yeah. Um, And now her platelets are low and she's hemoconcentrated. So I'm sure she's had a lot of IV fluids in 24 hours and now her hematocrit's gone up. So I would view that as being hemoconcentrated. You know, I, I just want to interject that calling for help is done for two basic reasons. One, you need people to do stuff. Or two, you need people to help you figure out what's going on and what needs to happen next. And I think this patient is a perfect, a perfect example of that. It may be that you have now met criteria for an RRT, as you said, even if the RRT is not experienced in obstetrics, everyone should have a maternal fetal medicine consult that they could obtain. Just another another set of eyes, another brain to look at what's happening and come up with a plan of care. Because obviously, something needs to happen with this patient. She is continually getting worse. And vomiting to me is always concerning. I know a lot of pregnant women vomit right before they deliver. But for me, when the stomach empties out, I'm always concerned about hypoperfusion. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just another sign, right? And we've seen that so much over the our years of practice. But yeah. also in looking at these cases that... If you start to add it all up, you've got this patient who, you know, again, who's low pulse ox, tachycardic now in the extreme range. Uh, You know, she's dropped her labs. Her temp is high. Her oxygen consumption is crazy high. And we're inducing her labor still. Uh. So it's not, it's not, um, it's not a surprise that, the fetal status now has barely, you know, minimal variability, borderline absent. And then we're going to start becoming more and more concerned about the fetal status. And you know where that's going to lead. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. And I and I'm now really deeply concerned because I've got I've got a critically ill patient. Mm hmm. And I, that's not stable. She's not stable. 
I mean, I right. think that that's the first thing we need to do is to say, this patient's critically ill. She's requiring yes. 10 liters now of face, o- face mask oxygen. And the fetus has absent variability and now starts to have variable decelerations with fetal tachycardia. And she has a category three strip. So the update on that is guess where they're going to go next? Yeah. We know. C-section. Right. (laughs) Right. So how many of you listening are looking forward to this C-section and you think everything's going to go just fine and dandy? You've got a critically ill patient. You're taking back to your OR, NOB possibly. Um, And so they notify the CRNA. So the CRNA is at the uh, coming in and the OB tech and they're setting up a C-section. They decide it's going to be stat. So they go to the OR, her pre-op diagnosis, non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracing and chorioamnionitis. Mm. And the urgency classification is emergent. So the decision to incision is 21 minutes and she delivers Baby's Apgars are two, five, and nine. She loses 1,200 milliliters of blood. So a hemorrhage would be classified. So she has received Pitocin, Methogen, and Hemabate. Um, and, and then they are, um, you know, monitoring her vital signs of the CRNA is. But if you note... She's hypotensive during this procedure, and they are giving her doses of neosinephrine, some ephedrine. She is tachycardic the whole time, and and not only is she in the 120s to 130s to 140s, 150s, 160s, she's tacking in the 170s, and the CRNA documents difficult getting blood pressure when they're leaving the OR to go to PACU. Oh, gosh. I mean, this is such an unstable patient. And so, so, so many signs of hypovolemia. Yeah, I think at this point, you're. this is a, a missed opportunity, I think, for a lot of um, OB teams is that as they're leaving the OR, you know, what is the state of the patient? First off, should she leave the OR when she has unstable vital signs like that? Because, mm. you know, in the in the OR, you've got everything you need, right? Yeah. And, then and typically the, more room to do it in. Exactly. So then the second question is, where is she going to go? I mean, a lot of labor rooms, they take their patients back to the labor room. And plug them into the fetal monitor for their pulse ox and their blood pressure, right? Yeah. So you don't have everything you need in a in a patient like this because if her heart rate is in the 170s, she needs to be on continuous ECG monitoring, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, someone better be figuring out why her heart rate's that high. Yeah. And she, she is, she's, she's even more critically ill now than she was... And she's lost another, she's lost 1,200 cc's of blood volume. Can you imagine what her labs are like right now? I, do you have labs? Um, I end up getting some about 30 minutes later. Some labs are drawn. She's now, um, her heart rate's in the 190s, by the way. My God. Her liver enzymes are elevated. Her creatinine is 1.1, so she has decreased her perfusion to her kidneys. Her urine osmolality is low, so um, her urine is dilute. Her anion gap is up to 21.8. Her glucose is 47. Her albumin is 1.3. That is... That's probably one of the lowest albumin levels I've seen. So that tells me that she cannot hold fluid in her blood vessels. Mm-mm. And her white cell count is four with 14% bands telling me 
She's got a lot of immature white blood cell count now. Her hematocrit's 23.5 and her hemoglobin's 8 and her platelets are 68. So even if I were to believe that hemoglobin and hematocrit, she just lost 1,200 cc's of blood. Yeah. That's going to be, not. that's not going to equilibrate until a little while down the road. So I can't even go by that, but her platelets are 68. And now also her PT and PTT are elevated. I do not have a fibrinogen, which is what I would like to see on this patient. But mm-hmm. I think it's safe to say that this patient has DIC. Yeah. Yeah. As well. So we've got a patient who is septic. There's no lactic uh, acid drawn, but um, there's no lactate drawn. But, you know, we've got a white cell count with 14% bands. Yeah. A left shift uh, on the differential also. Platelets are low. She's in DIC. She's had a temp. She had choreo diagnosed. And her heart rate is 190. (laughs) And her heart rate's 190. So you know what's coming next, right? So, yeah. So now her pulse ox drops to 82%. And um, her heart rate starts to drop and she codes. Mm. So the this goes on that she does get return of uh, circulation they put in central lines and an arterial line and she goes to the ICU and they start volume resuscitating her with some blood um but she ends up succumbing and passes in the ICU so mm-hmm. i am I just, you know, this case just resonates with me because I, you know, we go out and talk to these teams all over the country and so many teams don't have a maternal sepsis bundle. And this patient on autopsy, her immediate cause of death was DIC, but the underlying cause of death was sepsis from chorioamnionitis. And I think that was kind of obvious at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there were so many missed opportunities uh, with this patient. Yeah. And, and there are criteria for sepsis. And I think it does get kind of tricky when you've got a patient in labor and you are comparing what that patient's doing with the sepsis bundle. But you have to take a step back, particularly with this patient, and look at the fact that she's not oxygenating. And, you know, her SATs are dropping, her heart rate is up. And if if it becomes a confusing picture, bring more people in to look at it, bring in an intensivist, bring in a maternal fetal medicine specialist, and all of these people putting their heads together, because I would say this is not and this is not a straightforward case. This is a complicated case. When do you intervene for this patient and what exactly do you do? I would not want to be making that decision by myself. I would want other people involved and have more people thinking about it and coming together. What is the best time? When do we intervene? Um, maybe, you know, had they brought in someone that had more experience, like maybe with sepsis, they would have said, no, tank her up really, you know, get her tank really full, give her a lot of volume and then take her back. You know, we'll deal with extra volume in the lungs if we need to, but, you know, get, get her heart rate. Let's let's see if we can give her some volume and get her heart rate down. You know, those types of opinions I think would help figuring out what to do with these patients. Right. I mean, I think, too, you know, back when her pulse oximetry values were so low that, you know, and she was requiring more and more oxygen that, again, you know, what were the assessments like? Were they doing posterior breath sounds? I mean, I have Mm -hmm. no, I, I, I mean, knowing, again, looking at sepsis and thinking sepsis because this patient had choreo, and you have this oxygen requirement and low pulse ox values, then we've got to think pulmonary edema. 
And so testing to look for that, a chest X-ray, um, thinking non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema because yeah. sepsis is related to that. So yes. it's not necessarily, it's not fluid volume overload. So it's not like this patient, uh, you could you could see she was hemoconcentrated because her crit was going up, right? Her mm-hmm. hematocrit and her hemoglobin. So, you know, thinking she's hypovolemic, what other tests can we do? An echocardiogram, we can look at her cardiac function, we can get a mm-hmm. chest x-ray, look at, at, at lungs, um, cardiogenic, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, the chest x-ray is going to lag behind the, um, the hypoxia, a blood gas value would have been nice, but to recognize that this patient was critically ill. And I think then taking her to the OR and losing 1200 cc's of blood on top of being critically ill was just, she couldn't tolerate that. And, Mm-hmm. And and like you said, pregnant women, they can tolerate some of this because they're normal, healthy, you know, low-risk patients. And then until they get up to the top of that hill, and then they go off the cliff, and they yeah. go quick. And and that's, this patient didn't go too quick. She was telling everybody, hey, hey, I've got yeah. low pulse ox, I've got tachycardia. But it was the focus on the fetus, too, you know, that, that led to this, this yeah. outcome. Well, and I think, too, sometimes you'll sit there and, and allow yourself to think, well, but this is normal during labor. But this is normal during labor. But this is normal during labor. But what needs to also be taken into consideration is what is the picture of the patient? The picture of the patient is not normal. There is nothing normal about a heart rate in the 140s, 150s, 130s, 120s. That's telling you, and then the SAT being low. So, you know, that cancels, cancels out in my mind, this is normal during labor. Okay, it's normal during labor when the vital signs at rest go back to normal. It's completely abnormal when you don't have normal baseline vital signs anymore. It becomes right. abnormal and something has to be done. And for me, I think it's that shift in thinking, well, this can happen during labor. Sure, it can happen during labor. But then their heart rate goes back down to 80 between right. contractions. It doesn't stay at 120, 130, 140, 190. Right. And, you know, we've seen patients' heart rate go up during pushing, but not to to the level that, of this, we yeah. we also then, like you said, in conjunction with the low pulse ox value, it would have been nice to see what her respiratory rate was, yeah. maybe some, you know, documentation of what her skin color was. I mean, she was burning hot. Remember that too. When she went back yeah. for her C-section, her temp yeah. was high. So she was utilizing a ton of oxygen. And then, you know, during labor, us- utilizing even more so. I think that just knowing that we have a process to get providers to the bedside, but also having our criteria for maternal sepsis and for testing Mm -hmm. and for then implementation of a protocol is so essential in, in obstetrics. We are not exempt from the sepsis bundle and we have to get that in all of our OB units. It's the number two killer of women now. So Right. Uh, Inpatient, in too. And, and it really is, uh, we're seeing a ton of it. So I would encourage everybody listening to make sure that you understand your protocol and to make sure that you know how to implement it and get people to the bedside. Yeah. We learned a long time ago, the patient sets the standard of care, not the unit. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I we, mean, we, what does the patient require? Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. There's a lot of people in your hospitals that that are really they have heightened awareness of sepsis. The ED, they're very mm-hmm. they have heightened awareness, and and so I think every hospital has someone there that they can reach out to um, and say, "I'm not comfortable, you know, with this patient, especially pushing her through an induction of labor, um, mm-hmm. or taking her to your OBOR without having." 
a, a, a stabilization, you know, stabilizing the patient. And I, and I understand the whole, you're worried about the fetus too. I, I get that, that it's yeah. a, you have two patients, but this mom's critical illness caused the uh, fetus uh, to change status and to go into a category three pattern. So um, we just can't forget both patients. I, I remember very distinctly um, a series of sepsis simulations we were doing, and one of the OB anesthesiologists was talking about criteria for delivery, for cesarean delivery. And it, it you know, if, if an OB asks an anesthesiologist, can we do a C-section? Well, of course, you can do a C-section anytime, but the the thought process that this OB anesthesiologist was trying to instill was, can we handle a hemorrhage if it happens? Can we intubate quickly and easily if we need to? What are all the ramifications from going back to the OR that we know can occur if they happen to this patient? Will this patient survive? And if not, can we do something to improve mom's status? And if we can improve mom's status, most of the time we improve the fetal status. And I think that is where, for me, the sepsis simulation is really important to get people to recognize the bundle and recognize when to institute the bundle but it's also extremely important to understand the conversations that need to ha- happen. Sure. Where does this patient belong? What are criteria for delivery? And what are criteria to maybe get the patient in a better physiologic status before doing the delivery? All of these questions are really important. And they're not ones that we usually think about because... When we see a change in fetal status, we go back and do a C-section. And for a nice, normal, healthy woman, that doesn't present a problem. But for these patients, it can be devastating. Yeah, I think that it's the the thing that I'm seeing more and more of is that we're seeing complications in the OR and also in the PACU because uh, a lot of it to me is this We've almost normalized C-section. I mean, mm-hmm. over a third of births are C-sections in the United States. So, I mean, it's major abdominal surgery. There's not too many other surgeries done in the United States these days. Open abdomen, if you think about it. Everything yeah. is laparoscopic or, and, or, uh, and robotic. So open abdomen, major abdominal surgery, and we've normalized it, you know, take 1,200 cc's of blood loss on top of a a hypovolemic state. And you're going to see a patient that goes from critically ill to decompensating really quick. And, and then you're going to see a, you're you're going to see the patient have cardiopulmonary collapse. And, and I, and I think that again, it starts with the vital signs and in conjunction with what else you're seeing in your assessment that's abnormal getting the right team to the bedside and, um, and, and, and talking, you know, Hey, what do you think's going on? What's our plan here? If I see this, do we do this? And, and having those protocols and safety safeguards in place for, for our patients. Well, I know when we were both in the OBICU, it is not easy to navigate cardio, uh, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. That is not easy to navigate. And particularly in someone who's now in DIC and has every sign of hypovolemia, that is a tough balancing act. This is is. not an easy patient. Not an easy patient. No, it is the sickest patient that you'll see. It's a a similar patient to some, like a preeclamptic patient with severe features, Mm -hmm. especially if that patient has DIC and pulmonary edema, the, the, their hemodynamics are almost identical. And, yeah. and you start seeing that fluid just come out of the vessel and into the extravascular space. And you're having to oxygenate these patients at the same time maintaining their cardiac output. Again, 
the sickest patient that you will take care of. Yeah, very, very sick. Very, very, um, it, it's, it's so difficult to, to think about. And as an OB, I'm not an OB, but I couldn't imagine facing a patient like this. This would be a nightmare. And just knowing who in your institution can help you, I think would be a huge relief. And having the opportunity to practice ahead of time and let these people know, hey, look, this can happen in pregnancy. And if it does, and it, it very well could, I mean, this patient didn't require a higher level of care when she came into this hospital. I mean, she was appropriately placed. It could happen anytime. And knowing right. what your resources are and having them aware that you might need them and in what regard, I think would be very comforting. Right. For every hospital. I mean, yeah, I, you and I have worked in um, high volume, you know, high risk centers, but uh, even your level one maternal care units, they, they've got to have a plan for a patient like this because she could present. And again, it's so easy to start just focusing on what we feel comfortable with. And that is, oh, she's in, she's an induction of labor at term mm. with no risk factors. And then all of a sudden she has risk factors and, oh, by the way, her, her assessment is abnormal and she's getting worse and the fetus then responds and you go back to your OR. Yeah. So I think that that time out uh, before you go to the OR or at, you know, to say these are the potential complications, like you said, and to plan for those is, is an opportunity that we can add to our, uh, to OB and to make sure that everything is, we're giving the safest care that we can. Yeah. Thanks to everybody for listening. Gosh, this has been a, a, Uh, you know, a little bit of a downer uh, case study. Um, But again, what we can do with these cases is to learn. Mm -hmm. That's the best thing that we can do. And we all learn every day. So we appreciate you listening and taking your time to learn. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our social media pages. We have a Facebook page at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. On Twitter, we're at OB Critical Care. And on Instagram, at Critical Care OB. You can also email us from our website and send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. And we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much and have a great day. This podcast was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please email me at podcastnashville at gmail. That is podcastnashville at gmail.com.